Good morning. We're moving right along. This is lesson number four already in 1 Corinthians. Seems like we've just gotten started and already down to to number four. Uh, This morning, we're running a little bit late and it's a rather long scripture reading, so I think I'll I'll pick uh, some verses that are uh, that uh, are highly relevant to what we want to talk about today rather than reading through all of it. But then we want to look at our three discussion questions and then we'll go through the outline in the lesson. So let me read through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 31 selectively. Paul begins by saying here, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that one says, I follow Paul, another Apollos, another follows Cephas, and another I follow Paul. Down to verse 16, I did not baptize also the house of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then down to verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble, noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for allowing us this uh, opportunity to make our way through 1 Corinthians verse by verse and to see what you have there for us. Would you guide us again this morning and open our understanding and press upon our hearts the truth that we discover here. Uh, May we take that which we learn and apply it to our hearts to serve you in a better way, to love you more, and to and to relish the fact that you have called us out of nothingness into somethingness, more somethingness than any of us 
could ever have imagined before. And so we look now for your direction as we study this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin with the summary. Who would like to give us their summary of verses 10 through 31? I will allow four sentences this time because it was a long one. Edward. Paul made the appeal that those saved in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be united, for Christ is not divided. God made foolish the wisdom of the world to show us that the world does not know God through wisdom. Consider your calling. It is because of the wisdom of God you are in Christ. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, great. You've, you've captured most of the, of the main points there. Uh, with, with the foolish, foolishness of God. Contrasted with what people think are wisdom, but it's not wisdom. It's uh, uh, God proves His foolishness to be wisdom, and God proves His His weakness to be strength. Uh, and and we can revel in that fact and and uh, love God all the more because of the way He has brought about salvation. Uh, anybody else want to read their summary? It's a great exercise to do every week just to get you thinking about what the passage means. I'll add my summary here to what Edward did. Mine's a little longer. Paul appeals to the Corinthians to end their division into parties aligned with human personalities and abilities and instead to recognize the primacy of the preaching of the cross. Christ crucified is folly and an affront to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, it is the evident power and wisdom of God whose weakness is stronger and whose folly is wiser than men. He asks the Corinthians to consider their own circumstances, not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble lineage, and to recognize that God is the one who brought them into Christ in order to preclude boasting by men. And so you remember these, these special circumstances that the Corinthians found themselves in geographically, economically, culturally, that we've talked about a couple of times now, have resulted in some special circumstances in, in Corinth. It would appear here from what Paul is telling us that there were, I'll call it political divisions that were taking place in Corinth that were something uh, perhaps of a surprise to, to Paul, as we'll see in just a moment. And he now has confirmation that those divisions are taking place and he begins to address those. He's been doing that from the beginning, you'll remember, in the introduction, those first ten, uh, first nine verses but he's doing so in a very soft and tender way and sort of an oblique way. It's a, it's a little nudge of the elbow. But now he steps out and begins addressing the actual problems. And the problem, first of all, that he addresses is divisions in the church, and he appeals to them to end those divisions. And he goes on to talk about foolishness versus wisdom. Ellen, did you... 
so let's look at the discussion questions. First one is note that in chapter 1, verse 18, salvation is spoken of as being an ongoing process. Those who are being saved, it says. Why is it important for us to know that salvation is a process and not just a completed act? Why is that important? Okay, and why? And why? Well, because we have mirrors, and we look at our lives and we see who we are as human beings, and it would seem incongruous to say that salvation is completed. Yeah, and completed and perfected, it's not. So it's, it's a process, isn't it? Um, I'm amazed every time I read the, the uh, Mission to Main Street, Street, the evangelism report, uh, there seems to be a theme there. Uh, either people obviously don't know the gospel or they think they know the gospel. And they think they're saved when obviously they aren't because they can't answer the, the questions that are asked them about, uh, you know, why should God let you into heaven? And uh, you get questions like, and, I, and I've heard this many times myself, the answers are like, well, uh, my my daddy was a deacon, and my mother played the piano, uh, and, and of course I am. I remember when I went to my 50th high school reunion, uh, one of the folks that I went to school with from first to the 12th grade was um, had terminal cancer develop, and I, I I went over and sat down at the table with him for a while just to see if there was some opportunity there, and uh, I, I tried to direct the conversation. Uh, so that if there was uh, something spiritual there to be discussed, that that would would kick it off. And uh, and he was rather taken aback and offended by my bringing that up. Well, I'll have you know I have been a lifelong member of whatever church. I've been a lifelong, I was born saved is what he was saying. Uh, there's no need for anything else uh, to happen. And we know that salvation is a process. We call that sanctification. So it doesn't end just when you're saved. Uh, I had someone tell me one time who was who was uh, engaged in adultery. And, and he says, well, yes, I'm saved. Uh, he says, you were there when I walked down the aisle. So, but, but now he's justifying uh, engaging in, in adultery. So there, there's, there's not a good understanding. It's important for us to understand salvation is something that happens in the past, but it's a process that continues now. And as we saw last week, uh, we call letting the dough rise, we call that proofing the dough. We know it's good dough because it rises. It's, it's proofed uh, or proven to be, uh, to be good dough. If there's no continuing development, if nothing changes, if there's if there's no new life in Christ, then there's probably not new life in Christ. That that results in a changed life, that whereby we become more and more like Christ. Uh, maybe a bumpy ride. The, if we drew a graph of it, there are going to be dips in the graph. 
but the graph overall ought to be all up. Um, you know, if you drew the, the, the slope of the line, it's going to be upward, even though the graph itself may have dips. Uh, the president of one of the companies I worked for one time told the marketing director, give me a graph of that process with, with, uh, with, with no dips in it. I want only mountains, <laughs> only peaks. <laughs> and we all said, but you, I'm the president. If I want peaks, I should be able to get peaks. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll work on that. <coughs> there may be peaks and valleys in the graph, but overall the graph is headed up. And so there's a process. Uh, I gave you some verses to look at. Did you have a chance to look at those? How many different tenses did you find there in those verses throughout Scripture that mention salvation? Yes. Th three, and what are they? <coughs> Past, present, and future. There's actually a fourth one there. Sort of fourth. Anybody catch that? It's the perfect tense. Um, perfect tense is something that has happened in the past, so it is a past tense, but it has continuing consequences. It keeps going. So um, here's an example of a past tense. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us, past tense. Here's the perfect tense. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So you have been saved. It was in the past, it was punctiliar, something happened, but it continues. The consequences of having been saved in the past are still present with us now, for by grace you have been saved. The present tense, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Perishing is also present tense there. It's an ongoing process that's happening to the, on the part of unbelievers. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's to those who are being saved. And that's the process of sanctification. It's an ongoing process. And then the future tense, Romans 5, 9, is a good example of that. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We shall be saved. And that's the conclusion. Or that's the wrong word. It's not a conclusion. That's the consummation, isn't it? That's the, uh, that's the time when, when uh, Christ comes again. That's the time when we have been presented faultless before the throne of God. Uh, having been washed, having been glorified, received glorified bodies, and we are in heaven, uh, not the conclusion of it, but it continues on forever. It's eternal. So the past, the, the, the past with continuing consequences, the present that's ongoing, the future. And so it's important for us to know all of those uh, different uh, tenses of salvation is important. Uh, so we don't uh, we, we don't wind up 
and, and other people to whom we witness don't wind up saying, well, yeah, I was saved uh, 30 years ago when I walked down the aisle and shook the preacher's hand. Uh, that was my salvation right there. And it wasn't. It's a continuing process. And verse 18 of this section begins to make that very plain. It's those who are being saved versus those who are perishing. Okay. Discussion question number two. From our passage again, why did the Jews reject the gospel and why did the Greeks reject the gospel? Why did the Jews reject the gospel? Why does it, what does it say the reason was? Yes. They were expecting a miracle. They were expecting a miracle. Uh, they, they were signs. They were, they were asking for signs. And they didn't want to believe anything until they, they saw it for themselves. They saw it worked out. And do you think they would have believed it if they'd seen a sign? They had seen signs, hadn't they? Uh, there have been plenty of signs, and they didn't believe it, so they wouldn't now if Jesus had performed another sign on demand for them. Anything else? Any other reason for the Jews? Why the Jews reject? Yes. With Messiah being uh, crucified, yes. Uh, the Jews were very matter-of-fact in their thinking. God had promised them a Messiah. And they were looking for the Messiah to come. He was a Messiah the way they thought Messiah should be. Who was one who was going to come and take charge. He was going to overthrow the oppressors, especially right then the Romans and anyone else who might oppress the, the Jewish state. And Israel would be established as the, as the greatest country on earth. And they would have their Messiah to rule over them. They were looking for that kind of Messiah. It was incongruous to them to have a Messiah who was crucified. Uh, a humiliated Christ was not something that they could, could make jive in their minds. Uh, the scripture there says that that thought of Messiah and crucifixion together was a stumbling block for the Jews. And they couldn't handle it and wouldn't accept it and wouldn't talk about it. To this day, that's still the same thing. Okay, why did the Greeks reject the gospel? They were, they were looking for wisdom. Yeah. Wisdom was a big thing to the Greeks. And we know that because we've all read all the Greek philosophers, right? Aristotle and and what's his name, and <laughs> Plato and Socrates. Well, we read Plato, we didn't read Socrates. Plato wrote about Socrates. Um, and so all of those Greek philosophers, very important uh, to the Greeks, and, and they looked up to, to those who could, uh, who could think in those terms and to, who could express themselves in those terms. And again, the idea of crucifixion, which was a cruel method of death. It was, it was something that you didn't even talk about in polite circles. You didn't even mention it. It was, it was so abhorrent. And, and they couldn't match up 
wisdom and, and great intellect with a crucified Savior. Uh, how silly, how, uh, how much folly this was to think that, uh, that, that the intellect, great intellects of the world would believe that, uh, that someone who had been crucified, hung on a tree, uh, someone who was cursed by God, would wind up being their savior. And so they rejected that out of hand. Uh, this is part of the, the coming together, one of those unique circumstances culturally that existed in Corinth. Remember, it was a city that had been destroyed back in 146, I believe it was, B.C., it wasn't until 100 years later that Julius Caesar rebuilt it, and he rebuilt it as a Roman colony for his soldiers to live in, the occupying forces. And eventually the Greeks moved back in too, and so you have Greek culture and Roman culture at odds with each other there, uh, the, the Jews being very matter-of-fact and expecting a, a uh, glorious Messiah king to come. And the Greeks looking for wisdom and, and great, great rhetoric and great speaking ability and someone who could lead in that way. And so those two cultures clashed and meshed together and resulted in some of these unique situations that we find in Corinth. Third discussion question, again from the passage, so this is what does our passage have to say about this? Why has God chosen to use weak people with no social or intellectual standing to spread the gospel? Why has he chosen to do that? To bring glory to himself. Certainly that's uh, one reason he did that. Uh, it does that. Because right, if you if you had a if God sent a Messiah who was who uh, took the throne right away and led the rebellion against the Romans and reestablished the uh, the Israel theocracy and they ruled on the earth. Where would God wind up being in all of that? It would be them, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be God. And likewise with the Greeks. If they had uh, someone who came and uh, with great speaking ability and great wisdom, uh, greater than Socrates, greater than Aristotle, uh, it would be a human being, wouldn't it? And not God who, who did this miraculous thing. And so we're told here, um, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So, Paul lets the Corinthians know you're nothing special. They thought they were pretty special. 
because of those unique circumstances and their wealth and their and and the the fact that they glorified all of these human traits and personalities and they were they were beginning to coalesce into into political parties in the church and so that's what they looked to and and that's not the case um none of them paul says were particularly wise were particularly powerful people none of them were particularly of uh, a very noble birth uh you know their their mother and daddy were somebody uh they they had that lineage and paul says that's not so now one interpretation of this which is absolutely wrong is that christianity attracts weak people those who are not wise are attracted to christianity that's not what this says at all it says that god chose the foolish he could have picked the wise and the, those of noble birth and those who were eloquent speakers and uh and he could establish, establish his, his uh, rule on earth in that manner. But that would have been human glorification. Human boasting would be at odds then, would be in, in sway then. But God deliberately chose the foolish. He deliberately chose what is weak. And it says that literally here, it says that he did that in order to shame the wise. He deliberately did it to shame the wise. He deliberately did it in order to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So God had something of a creative act here in bringing about salvation in this manner. Um, He created the situation and he saved those who were who were demonstrably not savable. They weren't the people you would look at and say, they're the ones. They're the if if there's anybody that God's going to save, it's going to be them. You would look at them and say, if there's anybody God won't save, it's going to be them. And so there was very much a creative act of God going on here and doing this purposefully in order to bring about the fact that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord and not in men. It's It's who gets the glory. Is it going to be God or is it going to be man that gets the glory? People who aren't saved don't understand that humility doesn't have anything to do with physical weakness. Yes. Weakness and humility are Yes, good, good point. Uh, Christ was humble. He wasn't weak. Uh, he may have made himself weak, took upon himself the form of a man, but the last thing Christ is, is weak. Um, well, let's look, at the, let's look at the outline here and go through those verses. Uh, three points that I... Uh, arrange this in. First of all, the great schism. That's the division that Paul addresses. The great standard, the standard that Paul sets forth here, which he's going to mention throughout uh, Corinthians and rely upon 
to solve the Corinthians' problem. This is their only solution, is the preaching of the cross. And then the great reversal. Uh, There's a marvelous reversal of situations here. The foolish becomes wise, weak, strong. Nobody's become somebody. Well, let's look, first of all, at the great schism. There was uh, division. This was not doctrinal division. If it had been, Paul would have addressed it completely differently. But he, uh, he denounced all of those different parties, including uh, he mentions that some people that were saying, well, I'm, I'm the party of Paul. And he denounces that too. So these were political divisions that were taking place. It was a, these were power moves on the part of the Corinthians in line with, all, with that culture that they came from in, in Corinth. So he makes this appeal for unity. You'll remember we said back in the introduction in the summer that uh, Chloe's people came to see him and told him this, and we don't have any idea who Chloe was other than she must have been important because she had people. If you're going to be important, you got to have people, don't you? So Chloe's people, not Chloe herself, come and tell Paul this, and it, it's not real clear, but you can read between the lines that maybe he either didn't know that was taking place until they told him, or else he had, he had not wanted to believe it. Didn't know it was as bad as it was, and now they told him because they had directly experienced it, and they were telling him that. And then he sets forth the solution for that great division. It's the power of the cross. And that launches him into the great standard in verses 18 through 25, the preaching of the cross. And he talks about, first of all, the power and wisdom of God. It is For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's to those of us who are being saved. It's the power of God. And he goes on to quote from the Old Testament uh, where is the scribe? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the debater? Those are all three categories of people who were great, who were looked up to. The one who's wise, the scribe, the, the debater. And he says that God has made those things foolish <coughs> because he did not use the great things of the world to bring about salvation. He used those despised things of the world to do that. We talked about the preaching of the cross being a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Greeks. The preaching of the cross is foolishness and weakness of God. And it's those who, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here again, we have these two cultures clashing there, the the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, both of them arriving at the conclusion that the crucifixion is not viable. We, We can't believe that, can't accept that. But now they're coming to the conclusion just the opposite. There's a reversal taking place here. Now they come to the conclusion for those who are called both Jew and Greek, regardless of their cultural background, that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And they now come 
together. So, uh, so a reversal. And that leads into the, into the final point here, which I call the great reversal, because we have a number of things taking place here that uh, are quite remarkable. God, we're told, has taken the foolish things of the world and produced wisdom out of them, the greatest wisdom that there could be. He's taken the weak things of the world and made strong. He's taking nobodies. The Corinthians were, uh, for the most part, uh, I'm sure there were exceptions, for the most part, there were nobodies. And now they are the greatest somebodies uh, that have ever existed. I want to return to the world of ichthyology for just a moment, of the study of fishes. I used to be an avid uh, tropical fish hobbyist. I haven't done that recently. But I remember clownfishes. Uh, clownfish uh, are one of the staples of a saltwater aquarium. You see them quite often if you see a saltwater aquarium. Uh, clownfish live in rather unique circumstances. They live in a school or a community where a dominant female runs the show. A dominant female. Kind of like my mouth. I should have used you as the example of clownfish. Uh, so the dominant female is there. What happens when the dominant female dies or gets eaten by something? There's no dominant female. A dominant male changes sex and becomes a dominant female. So he, him, becomes she, her. The really yeah. <laughs> and change pronouns. It's a trans fish. This is an astonishing thing, a total reversal. Moving to the opposite like that. Um, God has created these wonderful things in his, uh, he's placed these wonderful things in his, in his creation that, that make us marvel and wonder at his creation. He does that to bring glory and honor to himself. I think he also does it, uh, to bring, uh, joy to, to people in the, and, and, and their fulfilling of the command he gave in Genesis to subdue the earth as we examine the earth and we see the wonders that he has put there. And here's a wonderful thing, this, this total reversal of sex in a fish. Who would have thought? Uh, ichthyologically, marvel. Soteriologically, drop in a bucket, so to speak. Soteriologically, from a human standpoint, salvation-wise, God has changed the foolish into the wise, the weak into the strong, nobodies into somebodies. And, and, and that's more than you can find anywhere else in God's creation. Then uh, the second part of the great reversal is the wisdom from God. He mentions either four things here or three things here. It is either wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Or what I really think it is here is just uh, one thing, which is wisdom. And then he elaborates upon what wisdom is. So this is wisdom, comma. And then he lists the, the three things that, uh, that are in apposition to this to explain what wisdom is. It's righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
sort of goes along with our tenses of salvation, doesn't it? Righteousness and sanctification and that ultimate redemption when we are with God forever in heaven. And then the question is, what is boasting then? And he quotes the Old Testament here from Jeremiah, which says that boasting is understanding and knowing God. It's not boasting in men. It's not boasting in great personalities. It's boasting in God. So let me end by just reading Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Are we boasting in the right thing? Boasting is understanding and knowing God. That's whom we should boast in. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this lesson. Uh, Seal it to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen.